0: Hello and welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Lobb. I'm joined today by a very special guest, uh, game developer Jake Burkett. Jake is the developer of uh, Regency Solitaire and his new game is called Shadowhand. How are you doing, dude?
1: Hey Ian, I'm doing great, thanks. Well, kind of, you know, there's a the whole Brexit thing today, <laughs> but I'm trying to keep my chin up, stiff upper lip, and all that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, if, um, so yeah, weirdly, we're recording this uh, on the day that we found out that uh, Britain's voted to leave the European Union. So, if we uh, burst into tears at some point <laughs> <laughs> during the interview, that's why. Um, cool, man. So, let's just get started and try and take our minds off of uh, impending financial global disaster and um cool so tell me about regency solitaire and tell me like how that went as a project and everything
1: okay sure um actually for those who are interested i'll do a quick pitch at develop on the wednesday we're actually uh, my wife helen carmichael and i are doing a talk uh, as a sort of post-mortem of regency solitaire actually so that's part of the um the, the free days at develop um i can't remember what it's called you know the one i mean
0: yeah the the, indie boot camp that's the one indie boot camp and that's a develop in brighton which is in july i think
1: yeah in july and we're sort of about two or three p.m in the afternoon on the wednesday so anyway yes how did it go well um the idea came about because i've actually been making uh, casual downloadable games for pc and mac for like Eleven years or so now, and uh, my wife one day said, "Hey, why don't you make a card game with a Jane Austen-themed story behind it?" And I knew instantly that it was a good idea. It hadn't been done before, and I knew it would appeal to the demographic that I'd been making games for. And I knew that I'd enjoy it because we both like costume dramas and and so on. So. Um, you know, we spent a, a year making that game, researching all the sort of locations, items, costumes. Um, you know, my, my wife was a science writer, well, still is for, for 20 years. So she did all the sort of research and, and we had a great time making the game and we really polished it and tried to make it feel authentic. And I think that comes through uh, when when players play the game. Um, and it did well in, in what we wanted it to do with the target demographics, which was sort of the casual download fans, um, selling via sites like Big Fish Games and Reel and so on. Yep. And, we put, um, and we put it on Steam a few months later, and it's done okay on Steam, and that's actually when it got press. Um, it didn't really get much press until it came out on Steam, which is sort of like uh, the way things are these days, I guess.
0: It's, it's weird, isn't it, <laughs> that basically the games press have decided that they're, they're only the sort of games press for a certain type of game and a certain platform's.
1: Yeah, and it's like Steam is a validator or something. Like it's like you've got your your um, passport stamp or something. When, when sure,
0: but Steam. I mean, I don't I don't know how long that can hold up now in the face of like you're, you're right the um, amount of stuff that's coming on Steam and just some of it is just terrible quality. Like I mean, like as an indie myself, I don't want to like rag on other indies at all, but like some of it is just does not look like it looks like people's first games essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, and. It, you know there's always this sort of like which hat are you wearing okay if i'm wearing this sort of like it's great everyone can make games there are tools out there for everyone to make games you can get your game and put it on itch.io or on steam now very easily and and you know that's fantastic that's fantastic if that's what you want to do in fact if i just started making games that would be awesome um, but the other hat is, oh, I've been making games for eleven years. This is my chosen career. I've been working really hard at this. Um, I want to keep surviving and, and being able to make games, you know, in this space. Yeah. But, but but now I'm having to compete with a huge amount of people who are basically going to make one game, have it fail, realise how hard it is, and, <laughs> leave, and leave. And the thing is, there's a massive lineup of those people.
0: There is. But is there in, is there infinite? Like, is there enough to keep flooding Steam forever, or? will it at some point die down when people realize that it's not like a gold rush type situation
1: well i don't know if there's been a decent analysis done on that but i would say that it it, it was going up until recently you know that steam spy guy does um sergio or something isn't he called he does um a lot of analysis on that and just showing the number of games coming out and i don't think this it hasn't slowed down yet it might level off um hmm so I don't know, you know, which hat do you want to wear. You know, if I put on my sort of capitalist, selfish, I want to make money from games. It's yeah. terrible.
0: But well, it, I mean, the best thing would know. be the old situation where no one was on Steam, unless you were on, which was terrible. Unless you were on Steam, exactly. in which case it was brilliant.
1: Well, you know what? All all of my friends were on Steam back in the day, and they've actually done very well, a lot of them, while I was still making casual games. And then I wanted to get on Steam with my casual games, but I couldn't, and I tried really hard, and I went to all these events, and I I was really jealous. And I had to go through Greenlight to get my games on Steam. And I don't have a Steam rep, like other, other friends of mine have got. A Steam rep, they can email and ask advice who might, you know, might feature them. And yep. uh, I don't have any of that. It's just like uh, I'm one of the sort of plebs on Steam. It's interesting, isn't it? So
0: there are still people that have a direct relationship with Valve yeah. and with Steam, and then there are just everyone else.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm everyone else. <laughs> I think adding.
0: if you sell, if you go through <laughs> Greenlight and then you sell a certain threshold of copies, though, don't they move you up into sort of like a different category where you can automatically add new games without like... I I
1: have definitely heard of that, and I do know of people like that. Like, I don't have anyone to ask, hey, can I have a key... Uh, Not a key, uh, what do they call it? A Steam ID. I don't have one for my... Oh, app ID, sorry, app ID. Yeah, I'd like to get one for some of my other games, older games, and put them on there, but I've no one to talk to about that, so... Yeah, yeah. I, have to, I have to make a hit game first, and then I can sort of go back.
0: <laughs> yeah, so going back to that, you have a talk about Regency Solitaire, don't yeah. you? Called the No Hit Wonder or something?
1: Oh yeah, well actually, no. There was two things. I did. I did a talk at GDC called the No Hit Wonder, which was about eleven years of sort of never making a hit game, but surviving. But,
0: but still, but- in fact, still actually having a profitable business at the same time of as not having what what someone from the outside would call a hit, right?
1: Yeah i mean i've I've managed to keep going by hook or by crook as they say or whatever so um yeah and and i guess i'm doing pretty well i guess compared to you know a lot of other people maybe um but it's not been easy and yeah there's always people doing better that you can look up to and go it's
0: it's been a weird time it's definitely like when one door shuts another one opens but that doesn't change the fact that that one door shut yeah (laughs) And you're not necessarily through the next door. Like, for me, it was like, with the way things went with Flash, it was like, I had both on the contracting side, Mm. I had, like, loads of contracts, way more than I could take, Mm -hmm. and then I had, uh, like, on the indie Flash side, like, you could just make a game, like, a simple game, and, like, uh, put it on Flash game license, and you would get, like, some sponsorship for it, which, again, was like, you could make a reasonable amount of money, so it's like, you had two two great options, basically, and then... Mm that all just went away overnight really and it's 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 super interesting because you at the same time all these new opportunities opened up and new technologies things like unity which i really love unity and it's like it's such a great bit of technology i so much prefer it to flash in terms of actually using it and what my stuff looks like Mm -hmm. but it's just that like in terms of the opportunities that have opened up it's actually sort of in a way well they're just different ones basically
1: yeah definitely a lot of stuff has Changed very rapidly. I mean, when I I actually spent two years working for Big Fish Games in Vancouver, and when I sort of quit that, did you
0: it, have some Flash days as well in there, Jake?
1: Ah, well, this is I nearly did because right. um, the last thing I was programming in at, uh, at Big Fish Games was Flash. Actually, because we were making a Facebook game, right. and I, I spent my last month there making a mini game in Flash, which was. Uh, worked out pretty well I was pleased with it and then in, in 2011 I, I, I quit and I wrote down a list of all the possible things I could do right, right. one one of them was Xbox live indie games because actually the language X and A was fantastic yeah um, and you know I really liked this idea of making small console games and I, I, I looked into it but I realized that some of the people making the best games were actually making hardly any money and i couldn't feed my family and i was like oh and i had to cross off the list uh i also looked into flash because i was getting good at it and i thought oh i could do this um but then i looked into you know people flash game license and so on but i I saw that you would have to constantly churn out these sort of small games well the market was beginning to fail you know uh, yeah you'd have to constantly churn out these small games and again i didn't think i could survive with a family i I could if i was an indie living in a basement eating noodles maybe yeah but
0: i mean then like like any sort of indie stuff it's like i think you have to compare it to what you could do uh, if you as doing your same thing as an employee and if it's like a lot less Mm. like even if you don't have a family you have to ask yourself like should you be doing it why why do that like what what's what's the end goal here like right yeah
1: well it, i mean it, the, the, of course that is that is the important thing i mean i'm making games but i could go back to business software which i did for nine years and maybe make more money and have more stability but i don't want to because i love making games Yeah, so absolutely. you know that is a massive factor for me it, it's maybe a sort of weird shoot myself in the foot factor but i love <laughs> making games i love being my own boss and having this lifestyle yeah and i mean
0: so now that like now that i've a, made a, sorry worth a lot of,
1: it's worth a lot of money that
0: you know, yeah, to me. Yeah, like, well, I mean, that's exactly it. It's like now that I've made games for a long time myself as well, it's like I really couldn't sort of make myself go back to programming mm. other kinds of things, I don't think, because I just don't think that I would enjoy it enough.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, there is that factor. You might not make much money back in the day making Flash games, living in the basement, and you could have got a better job, but maybe you'd have hated it and it would have sucked. So. I totally understand that, but there is the economic economic argument as well. Yeah, um, you have to take both into consideration, especially when you've got a family. I mean, I do know a lot of indies question whether they're doing the right and sane thing, and whether they're sort of being mean to their families by trying to make it in games. Yeah. yeah,
0: I mean, if you've, I mean, like I have a family myself, and I think like it is a big responsibility to sort of not oversell like indie development mm. and make yeah. out that like it's going to be some amazing like. Uh, yeah, we'll all be living on an island in, like, in the Bahamas in two years or whatever.
1: Well, uh, funnily enough, my wife watched Indie Game, the movie, the other day for the first time. Oh, OK. <laughs> I, I, I think I came home from Aikido, which I, I train in, and uh, she was watching it, and I sat down. Um, but I mentioned it in the talk I did at GDC because I, I liked the movie, and um, it was it was interesting. But it did, I felt, really m- mislead people to believe that if you just sort of crunched and... and half sort of mm. killed yourself um, for several years, you know, and brought your game out on Xbox that so everything would be magically okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: And, uh, in, in a way, I don't know how they did it, but the directors kind of got lucky with the people they were filming. I don't <laughs>
0: think they did, though, because or, what happened, I mean, I think the reason that Indie the Game the Movie is if it's misleading, it's mm. because you're looking at basically, like, essentially three or four, if you, three t- three teams of just mm. amazing talent Mm. and like really like outsiders in the industry essentially not like a typical right person Mm. and it and maybe the movie doesn't necessarily make that clear that like Mm. this isn't just what would happen to you it's it's almost like for example if you've ever seen like um a skateboarding documentary or something like that or a sports documentary where they look at like i can't remember the name of there's a really good skateboarding um documentary about like the the annual sort of international skateboarding competition, like the trick skateboarding right. thing. There's a, there's a Netflix documentary anyway. And, you know, that's looking at, like, this top flight of skaters who are amazing, right?
1: Mm. So it's out real outliers. It's
0: not looking at the other, like, literally millions of skaters. And it's the mm. same thing with that movie. It's like mm. they've, they have started out trying to make this broad movie about lots of different people, mm. and then they found, like, Team Meat and and uh, Fez guys and um, well, Braid sorry, had John already Blow. come
1: out Braid had already yeah. come out hadn't it? So, yeah.
0: exactly so they knew that was already a, a successful game and they just really focused it really intently on that but like I think it, they would have known when they made that decision that these two games were probably like on course to be much bigger than sort of your typical indie game
1: yeah I guess so I mean there were definitely exceptional teams I think also you've got the, this thing where back then um, Xbox Live was a sort of new, cool thing. I mean, a lot of people don't even seem to know that indies existed before Xbox Live and Brave, but, <laughs> but they did. Um, yeah. But, you know, that was a sort of cool new thing and the timing was right. There weren't as many teams around, so they found an exceptional team in at the right time. So there was a whole load of factors that uh, basically, you know, strength and survivorship bias. Yeah, and that that's my main worry and that's why my talk was about surviving but sort of barely people have said it's inspired them afterwards and so on and I hope it's inspired them for, for the right
0: reasons <laughs> I mean should we is it our responsibility to put people off trying to pursue like well, <laughs> game development could, as a career
1: <laughs> one could be very cynical and say um yeah, we should absolutely do that. We should tell it's terrible and get them all to leave and never even start shut down all the game design schools. Tell them they've got no hope so that we <laughs> we can keep selfishly, you know, going ahead a bit like all the people that voted Brexit. Um <laughs> the old people, I mean. Um so <laughs> but uh you know up
0: the drawbridge.
1: Yeah, so so we could do that, but I don't really I don't know. I just prefer to be honest that it is tough, but more that you can if you're determined you can make it work and find a way probably at least that's what i did i have been lucky at different times but i've also been determined and i think there are lots of different options and it depends how how far you're sort of willing to go to keep doing what you love really um yeah
0: so yeah and i mean there are lots of jobs as well like in the general games industry like where you can work for other people and not have the Mm. quite the same like financial instability that you have from like doing it yourself
1: yeah, that's true. I mean, although the weird thing is, is after you do it for a long time, you can get more of a financial stability when you run your own business because you've got this residual income coming from yeah. all these other games. You also know what to do to get to make the next game and who to contact and about funding opportunities and financial juggling. And So in the longer term, you're sort of... I don't know you can be more stable running your own business than being an employee in a very unstable industry right. Mm. Where, where yeah companies- because
0: w- one of the things that happens to people especially in like the AAA industry is there's a lot of studio closures like uh, the ge- games will ship and then the whole studio will just get shut down. Yeah, yeah. Um, Big- or, every, or they'll lay off like most of the staff and then you have to relocate and all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the studios can get bought out, studios can crash, close down, or, yeah, as you say, they just lay off the team that makes the game. So there's all of that. But maybe those people, if they're good, can waltz into another industry job. I don't know. I mean, there was a lot of that stuff going on in Vancouver when I lived there, um, studios closing all the time. And I think that's actually one of the reasons the group I set up over there, Full Indie, I co-founded. It sort of did sort of explode in numbers. It was just the sort of right timing Um, you've got game design schools there so there were lots of students interested there were lots of sort of indies anyway but there were a lot of studios sort of collapsing and people thinking about going indie so there was this sort of big turnover um, yeah
0: i wonder if we've seen i wonder if we'll see that fall off as well because one thing i've noticed with like indie games is the just the quality bar is just getting stupidly raised all the time, mm-hmm. where it's like stuff that would have been fine like a few years ago would suddenly now not look up to the same standard as like... I mean, some of this stuff, like if you've seen um, the the follow-up game from the Limbo team, um, I can't remember the name of the game.
1: I have heard it, but I haven't seen it
0: yet. But it's just so stupidly polished and just mm. ridiculous looking, and it's like, well, you can't... you're not going to do that. You're not like... an an indie can't really recreate that you're actually looking at like millions of dollars spent essentially mm. yeah i
1: think there's that is definitely a problem it happened in casual games right so you know originally in casual games you could make a very simple game no story not even really levels just a sort of fun little thing like yeah. if you you think back to the original bejeweled it didn't have levels right you right. just played an eight by just eight one grid level and, and that was it yeah um but later match threes have got you know all these levels all these stories this whole sort of meta game structure on top of it yeah i mean Um, that's it
0: they have like progression mechanics they've got like currencies that you earn and like all these different things right
1: loads of stuff you know some amazing special effects uh, different mechanics in there all sorts of sort of different power-ups and stuff so uh, and that that went up and up and up and it meant that starting out indies just couldn't compete and in fact if you tried to make a basic game that looked crappy a lot of the casual portals will say no we don't want it so only the sort of established teams were sort of could could succeed in that space but but also what was happening at the same time was the casual space was shooting itself in, in the foot by lowering the price of games so they were lowering the price of games the, the quality bar was going up a lot of the sort of um work was being then outsourced to sort of eastern europe ukraine russia um and w- where the li- living costs were less right you sure yeah. had a- excellent people could produce excellent work but it but it cost less uh, but even they're getting squeezed out you know um, and that, that I can see that happening in indie games now I mean I know it's not cool to talk talk about the indie apocalypse and a lot of people <laughs> d- deny it doesn't exist but I mean it obviously
0: exists though at this point I don't think you can sort of
1: something's going on
0: for sure like, right? <laughs> a lot of the people who defend it go well indie games isn't just about money and it's like well mm. yeah but that's what people are talking about when they say that no one's saying like mm. people are going to stop doing creative things with video no. games they're saying small independent developers are not going to be able to make a profit
1: yeah we're finding that feeling the squeeze definitely i mean i know a lot of people who are established who've made decent games before who've come out with games recently that haven't hit the mark and and they're questioning why i mean part of that's just because it's a hit driven business and you know you can actually have an early success and then make nine flops and after yeah. that but,
0: but i mean the crazy thing is if you do have a hit like they're so they're so huge the hits right mm, mm-hmm and but that's what
1: people are rolling the die for every time. They're hoping for that. I mean, I'm still hoping for that. I'm working on Shadowhand now, and I hope it does really well. But I've got this sort of, like... Uh, I can't think of even the right word here. But, you know, this, this sort of res- resignation that I've made 10-plus games, and none of them have been a hit. So so how, how's this one going to do? You know, I hope it will. There's always this small hope. but Yeah.
0: Well, you can't like give up hope. Otherwise, no. why, why bother? I mean... And another thing to do that I do is like I just focus on like the quality and like yeah. whether it meets my own standards of quality, and, and then because then at least you've always got the satisfaction of like you did a good job at something.
1: Absolutely, you've got to be proud of what you make, and 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 something that we, you know we, we're working really hard to make Shadowhand excellent quality, and we want to make sure that it's it has a good long tail. Okay, and part of that I think is you know, you can spam something out on the portals and maybe it might get some traction initially. But if it's good and people talk about it and recommend it, it will have a better long tail. And, I do, yeah, I do want to be proud of it when I look back. And also I want to have fun making a game. And, and for me, uh, the fun in making games is making it really good. You know, yeah. yeah, absolutely. In, I mean, your games
0: always does. look super slick and smooth and, like, all your transitions and effects and stuff always look really nice. Thanks. Um, did I read somewhere that you you work at 120 frames a second or something and that's uh, why everything looks so smooth
1: um no well, actually i have an internal uh logic system that, that runs at 200 um, right okay but it renders obviously at whatever your screen is which most are at 60 right but yeah. i actually developed this engine back in the day when people had crts and some of them were running at 75 or 100 or weird stuff now most flat screens run at 60 but the point is that they, the difference between a thirty and a sixty game is massive in my eyes. But yeah, I grew it up. Is. I, I grew up in the day when you know I used to play arcade games and, and back in the Amiga days, you know, a game would run at twenty-five or fifty uh for your TV, right? And if it ran at fifty, it just looked that much smoother. And I've always tried to make my games feel smooth and slick because I think it, even if it's not obvious to people, I think it sinks in subconsciously and just yeah. feels feels that much more. That's snappy. what
0: I think. Like it took me because obviously like I came from like a a flash background and we didn't have like V sync and we didn't have Mm. 60 frames a second. And so like, it took a long time for me to sort of realize like what I was seeing, Mm. like maybe sort of when that stuff first sort of started to come into the flash world and then unity started being a thing. Right. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's things like tearing and stuff that you Mm -hmm. always just thought were there. And then things like, which you can obviously get rid of with VSync, and then things like just the way things animate, like how smooth it is to have 60 yeah, instead yeah. of 30. It is a massive difference, and the difference up from... 60 to higher frame rates is obviously less noticeable but
1: yeah i think 60 is your key one and as i say I I, I I that my logic runs faster internally and actually that's to be honest laziness in some ways that i did that because when i made my first match three game the gems dropped down and they drop down with gravity and they sort of clash with each other and so on And if you have a high frame rate, it's really easy to do the collisions. (laughs) Whereas if you have a lower frame rate, you have to sort of do predictive collisions. Yeah, it's
0: it's true, actually. Things like... you have to do like shape casts and ray casts and things like that
1: Yeah, i don't do any of that because at 200 i'm just like (laughs) yeah it's fine it'll collide you know yeah Um, unless you had a super fast moving object then you'd have to do like a bullet uh, and a thin wall which it could go through sort of thing but if you run it at a high frame rate you know I, i mean also the problem with 200 is that if i did do a game that had a lot of um sprites and calculations per frame way more than I'm doing now, then maybe I'd have to drop that rate down and, and figure something out. But for, for sort of 2D games that I make, it's not a problem. Even even when I jam the screen full of particle effects, it's still fine.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a, an interesting like sort of way way around it mm. to just work at a, a sort of crazily high frame rate and then just...
1: Well, it's even more viable in these days with modern computers than it was when yeah, I, made, because, the, I mean, made the engine.
0: Realistically, some people are up to 200 frames a second now, so... Yeah, I mean, no. if,
1: I, if I switch off VSync, my games run at like a thousand or something. So I'm like, <laughs> it's not a problem.
0: And what um, what's your sort of technology stack or languages and that sort of thing?
1: Oh, okay. Well, I use a language that no one's ever really heard of called Blitz Max. And it actually came from... Back in the Amiga days, I used to code in assembly. And the, then this language came out called Blitz Basic 2. There must right. have been a one, but I heard of two. And I started using it and it was like a basic style language that compiled into assembly. And it totally sped up my whole game development. And I sort of never looked back because yep. um, I was spending all my time before loading registers and shoveling around bits of memory. And then all of a sudden I could focus on making a game. And so Blitz Max came out about 10 years ago, 2004 four, five, something like that. And it's an object-oriented basic language that sits on top of a bunch of C libraries, C++ libraries, right? Um, and you can basically compile on PC, Mac, or Linux. Um, and it, w- it it's not interpreted or anything. So when you compile it, it's running as fast as a C++ program. Um, but you've you just got the sort of ease of use uh, because the, it already handles the sort of image drawing, the sound libraries, file systems, you know, it handles a sort of bunch of low-level stuff. I've still had to write a framework on top of that to handle my game and all the sorts of things I want in a game like particles and sprites and UI and um, buttons and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. and then the game sits on top of that but yeah blitz max it's really easy to use it totally does what i want it's also modifiable if you want to fix or tweak something you can drop down to the c plus plus underneath which just interfaces with directx or open and modify it which of course you can't do with unity
0: yeah um and well, i mean pr- you can useful. if you can but it's obviously a much more difficult process oh, okay
1: right um yeah, I, I I haven't used Unity extensively. I have used it, and I can see why it would be useful. But I kind of feel like an old man who's like, oh, oh, can't program the video recorder, you know. I, um, and I'm quite happy with uh, my Blitz Max. Yeah, Uh-oh. I mean,
0: like if if you have a stack that works for you, like there's no reason to change it at all, mm. really. Like the well, there's a need- massive cost between of switching between technologies. So like, either you have to live your life like doing it constantly or you have to make really conscious decision that you're going to do that every so many years
1: yeah i mean i could see i could see a benefit to switching to unity now more than ever in the past there was issues with like 2d games in unity but i think that was solved a few years back um you know you had to get third-party plugins to yeah
0: do 2D, i mean all of that stuff has me. been resolved in the last couple of years so
1: yeah i mean and that's assuming i would keep making 2d games which i, I, I like i think you know um But I've seen in the past a lot of people change engines and change languages and never actually ship anything. (laughs)
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Just constantly doing that. So I've stuck to the same thing and made my engine better and I can keep shipping. And until it suddenly stops working on some version of Windows and I can't fix it, um, I I can keep using it. Or until I want to use 3D, I can keep using it, I guess. Or if I wanted to go onto consoles or something, I'd need to look into another solution.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I also use Monkey, which is by the same people who made BlitzMax. Right. Um, and Monkey is a cross-platform language, so it does work on PC and Mac, but it's not quite as good as BlitzMax for that. But it also works on mobile. It even you can even make Flash games with it, right? So you write in this basic language, and it exports in. It goes through the Flash API and makes Flash games. Mm. Um, and you can do HTML5 or consoles or handhelds, even Amiga and weird things like that. <laughs> um, and I use Monkey. Uh, I've only used it for one commercial title, which is when I ported uh, Titan Attacks, which is a PC game by Puppy Games. I ported it to Mobile, and it came out in the Humble Android bundle. Um, but I've used it for loads of mini-games because I, I still like to, alongside my commercial games, make mini-games. I did that one-game-a-month initiative by oh, interesting. M- M- Funky Pants. I did it in 2013 and 2015 and just made fun little games that sort of were, were different from what I normally do just to improve my programming abilities and game design abilities mm. so just just to have fun and Monkey was fantastic for that because I could quickly make something and make a Flash version and put it online you know and, and people could just play it straight away uh, and I, my my reasoning was also that I would figure out which genres I enjoyed programming the most and could maybe spend longer on one of them and also see which uh, genres and games people responded to the best yeah. by making a bunch of small games and then and then picking one of those and running with it, which I still haven't done yet, but it was, it was a fun experiment anyway.
0: Mm. It's interesting that, yeah, there's still, even if you're already a professional, there's still things you can get out of sort of doing game jams and doing those sorts of things. Mm. I'm it's- not a, like a huge fan myself of game jams like mm. i think that they i think i like them as a social thing like i went to one i went to um a big one that was in london in um pinewood studios right it was like the uh no the t- the tiger like official one and that was lots of fun as a social thing but the game that i made there was absolutely terrible mm. and um I just think that game jams are they in a way they sort of devalue the craft a bit of game design because you just crunch and put out something as quickly as possible,
1: mm.
0: or in this arbitrary time frame to someone else's like brief or specification essentially. Right. You, you never involve other players at all, so you're you're going completely off of your own. Um, what you think is like a funny idea at the time or whatever mm. and then at the end of it you just put your work like in the bin and you <laughs> never think about it again and if you compare that to you know we were talking earlier about um flash games and you had to if you took on flash game license and you had to sort of put them out knock them out like at a rapid pace
1: yeah
0: it's like well you, you could basically do the same thing as a game jam but you could then chuck on flash game license and get some, a few hundred quid for it and like mm. it was basically the same process except you were actually doing it as a commercially sustainable activity rather than just something to make you really tired on a weekend right.
1: well you know I've enjoyed the social aspects definitely I mean I've run a game jam in, in Vancouver a full indie one and one over here so I enjoy it and I think sometimes some really creative interesting things can come from them um, the full indie game jam in Vancouver that Matt Thorson started with at the time with Alec Koloka the first version of Towerfall which he then went on to work on a lot and that came out on playstation and you know i've seen a lot of games come out of game jams i think super hot was a game jam Mm,
0: yeah it was yeah yeah and Towerfall again is a great game so Um, so
1: you know that that sort of thing can occur but yeah definitely most of the time i mean i sometimes spend the first day not really getting into into it and then the second day panicking and and (laughs) (laughs) you know chucking something out the door but what i did for my one game a month thing was more it wasn't. Sometimes it was a game jam, but um, most of the time it was. Sometimes it was me panicking and making a thing in a day, but sometimes I was spending a couple of weeks on something and actually crafting something that that was a decent whole, small, short experience.
0: Right. But, could, but then, were you, but, what were you doing with that?
1: Well, just putting them on online just to sort of let people play and have fun with i mean i put some of them on congregate but they made like about a dollar over <laughs> in adverts you know yeah. over every year yeah i
0: think it, see i think earlier in my career i did sort of do things like that but now like i just am much more disciplined with myself where hmm. I, i'm like a bit more business minded i guess hmm. where i just think okay like what's the commercial strategy for how i'm spending my time today and if right. there isn't one i just won't do it
1: no i totally get that i just did it as as a self-growth thing you know mm. personal development and because i enjoy it as a hobby yeah i, I did that and, and i think i did gain some skills from it and i've definitely got some uh, an idea about what type of game i'd like to make i mean of, of all the games i made i think i had the most fun making a roguelike and i actually wanted to make a, a a commercial roguelike as a result of the, this small one that i made um and i actually pitched one to an investor but in the end i ended up making Shadowhand. but shadow has got loads of sort of rpg elements in it um which i'm having you know a lot of fun sort of coding and designing yeah. um so i don't know i I, th- I feel it was an interesting process for me and i enjoyed it but yeah it's hard to sort of justify commercially definitely and it did put pressure on my other projects because i was saying oh, i must do this thing every month make a game and and yeah i don't know it, i still i still like doing it. i'm proud looking back on all the things that i made
0: yeah absolutely um, so <laughs> <But> I- <laughs> yeah so i'm um, talking of pitching so after now okay well let, no, let's go back a little bit to regency solitaire so mm. even though you say it didn't do it did pretty well on steam but but not amazingly like the press that you had like w- most people would be so so envious because it was picked up by all the big news stories like you seem to do everything right in terms of getting it on rock paper shotgun getting it on kotaku like having well-known people talk about it
1: mm. um yeah i mean we did well we didn't before it came out on steam we got a couple of places but after that i think what happened was Rock Paper Shotgun wrote about it, and then Giant Bomb somehow played it and made this crazy video. It was a really good video.
0: Yeah, they uh, do um, They do quick looks.
1: Yeah, they did a quick look video, and it was really, really tense, where it came down to this last card. Right. You know, I don't know, and, then it, uh, and they were doing it like sports commentary, and it was, <laughs> it was really tense and fun and interesting, and that actually generated a reasonable sales spike. But a whole load of people, yeah, played it since then, and there was some really good... Feedback. We knew it made a good game. We just we just need to get it in front of people, right? And when people play it, even if they don't think it's their type of thing, they suddenly go, "Oh, actually, this is a well-crafted game, and it's good, and, and they enjoy it." But but even so, with all that press, I mean, our st- our talk at developers about um, it's called critical success, Steam flop, right? Yeah. And that's because no, it hasn't made hardly any money on Steam. If we'd released it on Steam alone, we we would have just been totally broke now i don't know i don't know what i'd be doing but yeah. we really but because we released it on these casual portals which is where it made like 85 percent of its money yeah that was what we were aiming for and that's where it did and
0: was it maybe a bit of a hard sell because it's something where you're like earning money so that you can decorate a ballroom and things like that and for core gamers that's like
1: yeah of course it's so we weren't aiming for that steam market anyway it's just a thought we we'll put it on green light and get it through and you never know it might do okay but we, we've sort of proven that even with great press getting a game that is wrong for the platform right and, and regency solitaire is wrong for steam you what i mean is wrong in terms of them to appeal to the most of the demographic yeah. of steam users right the people who've played it on there love it and love the achievements and try to get them on and all that but it's the wrong game for that market and we've proven that with all the press, it doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think many YouTubers or streamers played it though. But it's not the sort of game that I think does well in that sort of s- sense. You know, certain game types do better, don't they? Especially ones like survival games or roguelikes, where they're sort of different every time. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean,
0: how, how do you even make a game to appeal to streamers? Like, it seems to be like the thing that everyone's trying to do now.
1: Yeah, well, you can do. I mean, you can. Uh, uh, do you follow Ryan Clark on Twitter at all?
0: Um, maybe.
1: He made uh, Crypto the NecroDancer. Yes. And he actually runs a, um, a Twitch TV channel, I can't think of the right terms, but every Friday called the Clark Tank, where right. he analyzes what's going on on Steam and Kickstarter and so on and then looks okay. at the game. But he, he made a good blog post a while ago and he was talking about. Very early on, making a game concept which you can describe easily, so it's easy to market, which which looks good on a video, yep. and which you know that t- Twitch, t- you know, streamers and YouTubers will be able to play and get excited about. Um, so, in in other words, constructing a game idea and concept which. Pretty much markets itself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you still got to obviously do marketing on top of that. And and he's got a really good point. I think that's a really sensible way to do things. I mean, that's why with Shadowhand we just said, look, we know that people love the way Regency plays, but the theme is putting them off, right? Yeah. Um, putting certain people off. Other people, it really draws them in. You know, uh, fans of Jane Austen and so on. Yeah. So, so we said, you know, let's widen it out so that the theme you know it's got we added the whole combat element which is unique and never been done before and we're calling it an RPG card game because yep. the R- RPG element is extremely strong in it um and we've changed the visual look and so on uh and we hope that it will appeal to a wider audience on Steam than Regency Solitaire I'm pretty sure it will we just don't know whether it's going to be 50% wider or 5000%
0: yeah and are you are you trying to keep your sort of original audience as well
1: uh, that's a good question, because I don't want to throw the fans of the original under the bus. Um, but, but at the end of the day, no, we're not necessarily trying to appeal to them. I mean, if they right. liked Solitaire, they're going to like this game. And this game, Shadowhand, is actually a prequel to Regency Solitaire. It's got one of the same characters uh, okay. it, but 40 years in the past. So it's kind of interesting. Um, but we don't have... The, the, the honest truth is, much as I love the fans, and I appreciate every one of them that's, that's bought the game... There aren't enough of them to justify me saying, Okay, I'm gonna make a game that appeals to them. You know yeah. what I mean? Because if 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 ten percent of the or fifty percent of the fans on Steam bought the new game, we'd be totally out of business.
0: Yeah. I mean <laughs> what about like the fans on the other portals and things though?
1: Oh we're we're not putting that on the other portals. Oh
0: you're not going to at all?
1: No, no because it, it it's a couple of reasons. One is those portals massively undervalue games. I mean, they take a way bigger cut than on Steam. Right. They sell the games for less. Sometimes they give them away for free right. um as part of their marketing. Um and uh yeah, and also with the combat side of things that we've added and the RPG side of things, it would actually it appeals less to that demographic now. Yeah. So we might not, it might not do that well on there. One, yeah, we've got got some possibilities of maybe how we could tweak the game and make it work on there. But that would only be as a last resort if it didn't pan out well on, on Steam. So we're basically trying to be focused. I spent a lot of my indie years sort of trying different things like mobile ports and so on. But I've learned that focus is really important. So with Spooky Bonus and Regency, we didn't do a mobile port. We just said we're making it the best game it can be on desktop and that's what we're doing with Shadowhand but we're saying we're making the best game it can be to come out on Steam Yeah. and that's it it's a sort of single all all the eggs are in one basket which is risky but it also allows us to sort of try to make the best decisions for that basket
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean it's easy to spread yourself too thinly and and sort of make compromises in one area to try and make it work across all platforms but then sort of diminish the experience on your main platform
1: yeah so we yeah exactly so that's the decision we've made and and you know we've got an investor positech games is investing in in shadow hand um and it's and it's you know we're really pleased to have that um but we've got to make a, a decent return and again putting it on the casual portals would just i don't think it'd be a good move i mean you know imagine they sell games for 6 99 if you're a member and and if it's $15 on steam you can't have that sort of discontinuity
0: No, people don't like it
1: No, I mean that's People like
0: Steam to be like the lowest priced version
1: Yeah, well you can't release a game on mobile and Steam at the same time That's a massive mistake in my opinion No, but
0: then really mobile is it even worth chasing anymore Because it's just Unless, I mean it's a different thing I guess Like you just have to make free things with video ads and all that sort of stuff now don't you It's it's got its own
1: It's a weird market I mean a hell of a lot of people have said Regency would be great on mobile And they're right, it would um, it would play really good on there.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, in fact, I designed it at ten twenty four seven six eight, so that it would work perfectly on iPad, and I yeah. made all the buttons the right size. But we didn't do it at the time because we wanted to focus on desktop. And I know that if I tried it on my own, it would be very hard to appeal. I mean, just hard to get it out there in front of people. Yeah. So if I if I was going to do it, uh, and uh, you know, we, you never know uh, what might happen. It would be via some publisher or some partner which could get it in front of enough people yeah
0: absolutely um, because i mean the they just without like pro- some sort of cross promotion or like an ad spend it's like mm. you don't actually get any downloads anymore on for mobile games. so no it
1: would just be in a black hole so yeah. we, i'm well aware of that and that's why i just wouldn't wouldn't yeah, want to it's do it's such it.
0: a shame what's happened to mobile really because it started mm. out as such a promising platform and it's just mm. It's
1: well, you just, heard all the early success stories, the survivorship biases,
0: <laughs> and then everyone sort of jumped on it, and
1: um, and it was very easy to bang things out. I mean, what what also sort of annoys me is the, um, you know, the, the sort of knockoff games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't just mean clones, but I mean where they try to make the same name as another game and, and trade off, you know, where, where the store gets filled with the sort of 10 apps with the same sort of name, the yeah. very same sort of thing. It just it's way worse than like it ever got in casual games um yeah. and you know there there is obviously the worry that that's the way pc gaming is going
0: um but at least on steam we've probably protected from that because they're quite like you know the on mobile there there don't seem to be quite enough like copyright mm-hmm. takedowns and things as there should be Mm. Um, whereas on Steam, that doesn't seem to be the case. There's just At,
1: at the moment, yeah, and I hope that's the case,
0: and I hope yeah. it remains the case. What we've got is lots of people sort of buying Unity assets, vaguely sticking them together and then just chucking it up. But that yeah. isn't even the problem. Like, mm. they're not the problem. The problem is the games press have stopped writing about new games. Yeah. Like, they because it doesn't get clicks, like, they've got their own problems, which is that right. they find it really difficult to make money, and the way they make mm. money is traffic. And the way they generate more traffic is to write stories about things people already know about. So, writing stories about uh, like Dota or writing stories about like drama in the commercial, like in the industry, and things like that, rather than actually just going, here's this new game by this person.
1: Or about indie devs who have already released a game, whether or not that then you you know they sort of fart in a bathtub and then it, they, there's a new article <laughs> about them. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a bit cynical about that. Nevertheless, we're still very grateful we got any press at all for Regency. I mean, the that, that they are, the end goal the is it
0: for an indie is you have to become one of those people who yes, will they report yeah. they will report whatever you do as news.
1: It is sort of the end goal in terms of PR and marketing yeah. and everything else, but it could it could be horrible as well. I mean, because then you're in the public eye, and then you've got like
0: yeah, well, people yeah.
1: people saying weird shit to you on Twitter and stuff. And I mean, I don't know yeah swings and roundabouts I mean I don't I don't really want that sort of level of fame and everything else but I want the PR results you want the PR that
0: comes with it absolutely yeah yeah because it's like someone like Rami for example it's like the the press will report everything he does like he goes to conferences constantly but with that it's like he's under massive scrutiny all the time yeah yeah and there's people talking about him on the internet constantly like I don't I wouldn't be able to cope with it
1: no it would be pretty bad so yeah so i want the results without that but which is why <laughs> Clif, which is why cliff harris i think likes spending money on ads because in theory you you know if he's very good at it
0: he, is he, that your that's is that positech
1: yeah sorry that's positech he made democracy three in you space battles and published big pharma
0: yeah and he's been uh, really uh, successful like, with like democracy
1: right yeah very very much so Um, And so, but he also knows about ads and marketing. And he's much more willing to spend money on that than try to become a sort of industry, you know, pundit who's who's picked up by the press for their opinion every few minutes or whatever. So, um, yeah. And so that's an alternate approach that not a lot of indies do. I mean, partly it's because it's hard to understand and, and comprehending and it's kind of boring I'd say I mean he, he enjoys it but it's kind of boring figuring out how to get the right ad- words on an advert and, and how to optimise your spend and so on but uh, and also to some people it, it, any kind of marketing feels like evil or do you know what I mean? Or Yeah but I mean that's silly
0: it. though because like you need, it's just a way of helping people find out about your game and yeah but that's how <laughs> you've d- got a view at the end of
1: the day or, so
0: yeah I guess the thing is like don't know it's put it's putting your money in where your mouth is in a way maybe that it doesn't feel like just spending your time is does that make sense
1: yeah like sure. it's
0: like people would happily like spend three months of their lives working on their games in mm. their bedrooms not earning any money mm. but then but then going okay are you gonna actually put down like 200 quid <laughs> in hard cash to run this small ad campaign you'd be like no
1: well, I think he spends a lot more than two hundred quid. Oh like no, I that. no,
0: that's what I'm saying. Like but that yeah. that's like that will get you like one day of like a small campaign, right? That's gonna generate yeah. X number small number of sales and you have to do that all the time. Mm. But I guess the what? thing is you start small, you do an ad, you see mm. if it gets you any sales. If the sales it gets you are more than the ad cost, then
1: in theory, but you've got this problem with too small numbers, haven't you? You know, right. where if you don't spend enough, you don't get decent data points, and then you're going to make loads of weird assumptions about yeah. one, making one sale from hundred dollars th-
0: There's a thing people say, isn't there, about, like, people have to see your thing, like, seven times or something yeah. before they yeah. remember it. And, I mean, for for video games especially, well, for any product, right, there's a thing in marketing where it, you have to create, like, a desire on the person mm-hmm. of the your potential customer right that this is something that they need to have right yeah and how you do that like that's not that's not an easy thing to do and like you the success of like kickstarter and things like that is a lot of the most successful kickstarters they have they create a sense of nostalgia Mm. for the past and they use that and that's what they're selling basically Mm. And you yes. see it and you go, oh, I, I, if I could play this game, that would take me back to my youth in some way, right?
1: Especially when it's via a team of sort of ex-previous, you know, AAA devs from 20 years ago yeah. or whatever,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, for for anything, for, for like, if you're selling cars, it's like you see the car driving down the empty road and all of that things and you go, mm. you know, I mean, car ads obviously only work on some people yeah but like they only have to work on some people
1: you might be surprised at how these things work because there is a whole creating desire thing i totally hear that of course but this thing about repeat viewings is that if you have been exposed to a product five ten times and you've just seen it you know you've saw somebody talk about it you have seen an advert even if you haven't taken in in any level um whether you know whether it's any good or not and then later on you see that product and another product you've never heard of and they're sort of comparable prices. They look fairly similar. You'll pick the one you've seen more, just because your brain is more familiar with it. Yeah. Because the familiar brain likes to. It just values things as better, just because it's familiar. Mm. And that's obviously a, one of these logic logical fallacies. But that's how yeah. advertising works. So. But then in games, though, we don't do really
0: it. even have a store shelf, though, because, like, the store shelf is infinitely big. Mm. And so what you get is like a little thumbnail of a. image that has to sell your whole game like yeah i
1: know yeah and people get even that very wrong as well but hopefully by the time they see that thumbnail they've seen it on twitter on facebook on reddit on rps or whatever and they see that oh yeah yeah i remember that you know add it to their wish list and then they wait for it to go on sale (laughs) 75 percent off
0: (laughs) yeah god bless the people who spend hundreds of who buy hundreds of steam games yeah cuz yeah. they they sort of keep the whole thing going <laughs> cuz yeah. most steam users only like ever like buy like three games or something.
1: Yeah, I know I that was a really interesting thing actually recently. I was talking to Dan Cooker about this at GDC. Um but the the Steam Spy guy didn't he show recently that there are only a million users on Steam's out of Steam's 120 odd million who actually buy indie games like the other <clears throat> One hundred and nineteen million. <laughs> yeah,
0: don't don't buy them. I they think so. Have, yeah, I think so.
1: You know, they only play Dota or whatever, as you say. And I mean, I, I spoke to these four people on a train a while ago, and, and one of them said he had heard of Steam, and he just used it for Football Manager, and that was it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but Dan Cook was saying there are certain types of you can classify people apparently loosely in certain groups, and I think it was the um, novelty seekers or something who buy right. into games. So. Um, you know and it really you're not vying for 120 millions people always do this math if only i could sell to one percent of 120 million people (laughs) that's 1.2 million people it's not it's a million people
0: yeah it's those million people those people and they're spread all around the world and those are the indie (coughs) games fans those people buy indie games they buy lots of them Mm. um that is who you essentially have to appeal to they're an awesome bunch of people though like they're super open minded they're really Mm. well informed like they read like all the news mm. game sites and everything like they're not just relying on like buying one magazine or something and yeah. or just or things that are advertised on TV but yeah I mean ultimately like that's
1: but you're selling to an anomaly you're not selling to the average gamer even you know you're selling to a gamer with very specific tastes who's willing to say, Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I play AAA games, but I also play indie games. Now, some people won't touch an indie game with a barge pile, won't be interested in these weird, janky looking graphics, or <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or yeah. funny, small experiences, or you know, non multiplayer games, or, you know, so people just, a lot of people aren't interested. So we have to be, yeah, grateful and cultivate that audience. Um, yeah, but there's absolutely. a lot, lot of people trying to vie for that same business, and that's the a concerning thing
0: (laughs) well yeah but then it's so funny because the people who are successful they just make it look so easy Mm. do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like think about games like Don't Starve yeah where it's just like so phenomenally successful like YouTubers love it streamers love it players love it it has it does so well
1: oh that game came out of a game jam because I know Jamie who runs Clay and uh, he let his staff do a game jam one time uh and they came up with the idea for don't Starve" in a sort of weekend game jam and yeah they, ex- they expanded upon that so i hope that's not secret internal knowledge i don't i think don't that.
0: think so i think i've heard that before as yeah. well
1: <laughs> so yeah so, so they do make it look easy but um i think w- one of the things this sort of proliferation of indie games does though is it encourages the people who've been in it for a while or whatever to, to up their game Okay, so you you really have to think about you can't just make something that you think would be fun and you'd like to make. No. You, you've really got to sort of look at can it sell itself? Can it market itself? Like Ryan Clark says, am I going to enjoy making it? You've still got to enjoy making it and be proud of it. You know, is there a viable market for it? You've got to look at all of these things. Can I line up the funding to raise the quality bar high enough on this game, um, which is you know what we're trying to do with Shadowhand? So can you bring all those things together? Uh, and then you stand a better chance than someone releasing the first game. There's never any guarantees, but it, it is forcing us all to sort of improve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but th- there may be a certain point where, no, you need a studio now. You've got to have a studio to be able to make the sort of level of games that does yeah. well.
0: but then for that, you need to either have already had a hit game and have money to reinvest, or you mm. need, like, investment, right? You need, mm. like. Mm. Someone to invest some money in you, so you need like a publisher or something like that. So then, at one point, that's the end of indie. At that point, right?
1: Yeah, it's not the same. What do you think about this? The the various press that's been going around recently about VR um, VR manufacturers saying they've got loads and loads of money to invest in VR games. Well, I
0: mean, if they have the money, they put they should put their money where their mouths are, essentially, right? Um, mm. like if if they're willing to make the bet, essentially, like if oculus have want to give you like 50 grand or whatever to make a game and they're willing Mm. to invest that money brilliant Mm. but if they're not like it shouldn't be for indies to gamble on this unproven Mm. technology which has uh, at the moment a really small install base
1: yeah no, I think they are saying they have got the money to spend, but um, although they're looking at bigger projects, the thing is, you know what? This is an opportunity cost. I think Indies need to be very wary of this. Let's say you lined up hundred grand to work on a VR game for a year, right? That might sound like good. You know, if you're struggling, you might be like, "Yeah, great, hundred grand. Oh, I'll work on this game for a year." Um, yeah, sounds
0: alright so far. Okay. Well,
1: okay, but you could have made a different game without that that funding, which has got a much <laughs> higher potential yeah, like, but then we, if you
0: look at median if you look at like median sales and stuff like that yeah on average you wouldn't have done you've done much better to take the, the to, to take, take the their money. money and yeah. the, the best sort of deal is something where sorry this has gone all business this podcast is fine but it's quite interesting we'll, we'll just come we'll cycle back to coding and design oh sorry end. yeah but sorry, no that's yeah. okay I, li- I like talking about this stuff but um sorry what were we saying we we're talking about um oh yeah um, the best sort of deal is one where you have some money up front so, like, your co- it covers its costs automatically, yeah. And then you also have the potential to like earn out residuals and things like that. Forever. But if you do,
1: if you do that with Vi, let's say you get the hundred grand up front, you make the game, your residuals, I'm saying, are, are going to be crap, right? At the moment,
0: unless things well, change. yeah, probably.
1: So, so whereas you could spend your time if you knew what you were doing, this is what I'm saying, um, and you weren't desperate for cash, <laughs> making a game that you'd you'd specially, you know. Spent a lot of time on researching yep. the market that you could maybe get the funding for and that had a much much better longer term. Yeah,
0: well, for sure. Like, I mean, if you if the funding is there for both things, take the take I the would second. take the non VR one because the potential yeah. upside is obviously much bigger because it's a much bigger audience. Mm. I mean, it's the same thing almost with mobile. It's like if you had a mobile publisher who was willing to invest a lot of money in you to develop a mobile game, mm. like that would be cool because, um, like. Ultimately, the potential upside on mobile is huge. There are huge games yeah. on mobile, but if it's they like, knew what they
1: were doing, for sure. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. And if they've already invested money in you for development, they're going to invest money also in marketing and code mm-hmm. promotion and all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, yeah, so let's let's just circle back around to design a bit for game design because it does it does talk about what we're we we we're, we're talking about anyway in terms of like games that sell themselves that don't require like huge amounts of marketing, things that are just mm-hmm. ideas that appeal like do you have any sort of like tips or sort of game design learnings that are sort of things that y- you work by
1: what um, in terms of making an idea that appeals or just any- anything just in general hmm huh um. mm. I-, I actually did a talk 10 game design tips <laughs> quite a few years ago Okay. I should, tr- I should try and remember those <laughs> <laughs> uh I do know that one of the things I've been quite strong on in in more recent years in my game is adding in some kind of meta progression. Yeah. And I think there's a lot you can do there to keep people interested in playing your game, you know, right through to the end. Of course, there's this whole sort of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Yeah. So... So uh,
0: is the game fun in itself just to play it or can you also add things to it to make it fun
1: yeah like, like you do progress not want bars to... that
0: go up and things like that
1: yeah if your game is crap and the only reason people are playing it is because of the meta progress then you sort of still failed so you, so you <laughs> want like we knew with regency solitaire the core gameplay was really good yeah and then we added the meta progress on top as just a sort of extra sweetener really
0: yeah um
1: uh, and the story and you're course, telling a story
0: too. as well which in a way a story is another kind of yeah, gamification mechanic in a sense
1: absolutely but for those people that want that uh, yeah. and you know actually something interesting happened with with the game which is when we first shipped it we had these normal and hard modes but in normal mode you still had to beat the goals they just weren't as hard as hard mode but about halfway through the game it started to get quite tough and if you hadn't figured out the, the tricks of playing solitaire and using all the m- mechanics properly Yep. you would struggle a bit yep. and a few people complained very early on that they just wanted to see the, how the story panned out right so i modified the game so that it says i'm sorry you didn't reach the chapter goals do you want to carry on anyway right and that was in normal mode in hard mode it's like no tough you've got to sort of
0: complete the goals yeah
1: um and that that solved that sort of problem yeah because i mean you always
0: want to keep people playing right you never want to put yeah. up walls
1: yeah, well, this was essentially a wall, a skill-based wall, which meant that people couldn't enjoy the rest of the story, and that yeah. was obviously a, obviously a mistake. So I would never do that. You need a way that somebody could almost like... It could be a super easy mode where they have to hardly do anything and can just yeah. read the story. For, for yeah, I mean, fans. a
0: nice a nice way is to have things like, well, things you can grind for to make progression easier. Yeah. So it's like if you're good, you can just rocket through the game, and if you're not so good, you can grind for things that will make you... Will make the game easier for you, basically.
1: Right. I mean, it's like, a the whole thing about time poor, money. No, sorry, time rich or whatever money. Well, rich, no, that yeah, but that's to do with free. To,
0: that's to do with free to play games. But yeah. I guess yeah, if you like if you, if you're super skilled, you can. You sort of don't want the game to be easy anyway, so yeah. Hmm. But um, yeah. So that I mean that works. Another one is to just have like optional stuff that's hard, but it's not part of the main like right. quest line, essentially. Hmm. right so you have some really like this is what rayman does brilliantly it's like rayman has um this is the new rayman games rayman legends and rayman origins like they're so they're such good examples of game design but yeah i was playing it at
1: the weekend with my uh,
0: youngest son oh awesome yeah they're really Hmm. nice games to play with kids but um yeah so basically those games they have uh some you start off on like a relatively easy dungeon and you work through it and when you if you fail you never lose that much progress like it puts you back to a checkpoint like yeah. 30 seconds ago or something mm-hmm. and you get through the levels and then as you get through the levels you unlock new levels and you need like a certain number of lums to unlock like the next level but if if you were really good first time you got those lums right away and you can yeah. progress and if you weren't you can go back play play another level or play the same level again collect the lums you missed and like sort of grind it out until you've earned enough to get to the next stage. And in that time you've also got better at the game, so you're more capable of taking on the next dungeon.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean it's a Dark Souls model as well, isn't it? Exactly the same idea yeah. that you you know uh where you grind it till you're skilled enough, you know, rather yeah. than uh, yeah, absolutely. stuff.
0: Yeah, but- and then also um it has for each dungeon, uh, it gives you like different achievements. So you can just complete it or you can complete it in a certain time and you get an extra, like, little trophy for that and you can complete Mm it um, where you collected everything and you get an extra one for that. And so it gives, like, reasons to replay. Right. Essentially.
1: Yeah, it is a good, very nice game. Um, So, you know, with Shadowhand, I'm trying to figure out how easy do we have it because I don't want... The the difficulty is it's on Steam and I think in some ways you can make games harder on Steam and you don't want to make it too casual because if players get a whiff that it's casual you know i think that there's a certain mindset which is anti-casual
0: yeah Um, absolutely so we i would say you absolutely want to make people totally understand that they're not buying a casual game they're buying like a card game
1: yeah we want to make that very clear from the outset and and to to, to a certain extent we don't mind if it's fairly hard right from the beginning yeah um and keep that going through but we can definitely have harder levels of play we don't want to handhold people too much. Um, one of the interesting design decisions about this game, uh, Shanahan, that came from talking with Cliff, he kept sending me screenshots of Eve Online or something like that, right. and it had all this really jam-packed interface full of tiny, little you know elements and tiny text and everything yeah. else. And he was sh- showing me that games like that can do super well. Um, and I was used to designing casual games and making clear buttons, clear interfaces, everything made sense. You know, you could read everything. And yeah. he, he was telling telling us to sort of, you know, consider that there's another way for Steam audience. So we did deliberately sort of make everything a bit smaller and a bit pokier and uh, on Shadowhand, but I've still tried to make it accessible and usable and all of those things. But I've not, not sort of made things big and... and kiddie-looking, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I know exactly
0: uh, what you have mean. You've, you've tried to keep that uh, sense of, like, needing to understand lots of information at the same time that you get in, like, RPGs.
1: Yeah, we've not shied away from that. We've not said, oh, that's too much information on the screen. You know, we've... we've we've showed more rather than less when we could do but i've still tried to keep the sort of design ethos i've learned through casual games with that so i guess we struck some kind of middle ground but when the artist for example first came back with the the first ui for the game everything was too big and it was like too purple and i sent them back back all these screenshots of all these rpgs and said no smaller you know darker (laughs) um and, and so we've had quite a lot that's actually been a sort of interesting challenge with this game because we're working with a team in ukraine called Retrostyle games who do great g- graphics they're used to doing casual games and we've had to coach them to constantly sort of de-casualify some of the stuff they've done for right. us and make it darker more steam like and so on yeah i think i think we're i think the game looks fantastic but i think we're there's a small concern that it still might look a bit casually to some external you know, viewers, um, but we've still the end result is is definitely as a result of, of doing a lot of art direction, trying to get it looking more like a Steam game with the UI and the interface and the cards and everything else, so we'll see I guess we'll see how that turns out
0: Fantastic, um, well Jake I think we've run out of time so we'll have to leave it oh, there um, okay. If people want to know more about Shadowhand, when's it coming out and then where can they find you on Twitter or whatnot?
1: Okay, I'm on Twitter as at Alien. Uh, Helen, my partner, is on there as um, at BC Heza, with two Zs, I think. Um, and I'm Grailing Games. Uh, Sh- Shadowhand is coming out summer this time. Sometime this summer. Okay. Pretty soon. Pretty, pretty soon.
0: soon. So stay tuned and <laughs> yeah, follow soon. Jake if that's whetted your appetite, if you like. A, a, a sort of solitaire-based game that's also a an RPG. Hmm. a a unique
1: experience
0: thanks Ian it's been a pleasure talking to you no worries thanks so much it's definitely helped take my mind off the impending apocalypse
1: (laughs) oh no you brought it up yeah
0: oh dear oh well (laughs) nice to speak to you yeah all the best bye then you've been listening to the creative coding podcast if you'd like to support the show please do head over to patreon.com slash creative coding